The following program may contain language that is explicit. It's Wednesday, December 9th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hunter Biden is being investigated for tax improprieties. The U.S. government announced actual misdeed or lingering Bobolinskyism. Too early to tell. Let me read the dual statement the Biden-Harris transition team put out. Here's why I say dual statement. It starts with a statement by Hunter Biden. I learned yesterday for the first time that the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware advised my legal counsel also yesterday that they are investigating my tax affairs. I take this matter very seriously, and I am confident that a professional and objective review of these matters will demonstrate that I handled my legal affairs appropriately, including with the benefit of professional tax advisors. Amended to that statement from the Biden-Harris transition team, President-elect Biden is deeply proud of his son, who has fought through difficult challenges, including the vicious personal attacks of recent months, only to emerge stronger. Now, I have to say, in this matter, I am not that concerned with Hunter Biden's personal journey of strength through adversity, nor am I terribly compelled by his dad's opinion of the journey thereof. Wonderful for Hunter that he has a spirit forged through hardship. But more concerning is if he committed tax fraud. But I also have to say, it's not that concerning. He is a different human being than Joe Biden. And Joe Biden happens to be the person who will be president. So let us hope Hunter Biden did not commit a crime. And if he didn't, let's hope he's not unfairly prosecuted. But also, if he did, let's hope he's fairly prosecuted. And most of all, and I say this deeply and sincerely, Who really cares unless someone can prove this possible deed is in any real way connected with the presidency and not a relative of the president, a relative who's not yet even accused? Oh, by the way, anyone who derives any emotional, spiritual, or personal benefit from being the proverbial knife sharpened upon the whetstone of harsh tax justice, I would say that is between your lawyer, your God, and I suppose Tony Bobolinsky. And now, remembrances of things Trump. In this remembrance of a thing Trump, we remember his special plans for his special wall that was ever so barely built 16 miles of, or new miles of wall where there was no barrier before. Very modest. But anyway, he was quite involved with the shape, the height, and the look and feel of the wall. He was in fact keen to, as Mick Jagger sang, Paint it black. We're better off letting it be a natural rust, letting it be uh, the way it is. We'll make a determination as to painting it later. This will be a good, strong rust color, uh, and we'll see. We'll, we'll make that. It's not a big deal. Uh, the black attracts more heat even than this color, uh, but this is your natural seal, and I think uh, we're going to see how it works out. We can paint it at a later date if we decide to do it. They did not decide to do it. They barely built it at all, as I said, and as the president noted with his idea for detail, that it was a strong rust. Nothing says steadfast and unable to be broken down than rust. And this has been Remembrances of Things Trump. On the show today, I spiel about the black community's reluctance to get a vaccine, why that may be, what messaging should be done around that. But first... Capitalism has not been working out so well for labor in this country over the past few decades. There was a time when it was great, 
post-World War II unions, jobs, split-level ranches, trips in station wagons, affording college by taking on a part-time job. That's gone. It's all gone. And so increasingly is the middle class. Here with an examination, a treatise, an explanation, and a bit of a solution is New York Times economics reporter Jim Tankersley, author of The Riches of This Land, The Untold True Story of America's Middle Class. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Time was, if you were a middle-class American aspiring to stay in the middle class, if you were a high school graduate or not even had a strong back and a decent work ethic, well, there was a pathway to that house and those vacations and maybe that boat. It could be in, an, in the aerospace industry in Downey, California. It could be in the forests of Oregon. It could be in a plant, a manufacturing plant in Ohio. Now so many of those career paths are gone. What happened to them? One economist calls it the hollowing out. And there to excavate what was left of the middle class is Jim Tankersley. He is an economics reporter for the New York Times, and he is the author of The Riches of This Land, The Untold True Story of America's Middle Class. Jim, welcome to The Gist. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just delighted to be here. Everyone wants to be in the middle class, and they say they're in the middle class even when they're not. And you document the rise of this concept. But how useful a concept is it, do you think? I think it's really useful for a couple of reasons. One, like you said, everybody thinks they're middle class, uh, and that includes um, sort of lower income Americans who uh, probably don't meet my definition of middle class but are aspiring to be in it. And it also includes a lot of rich people who are objectively rich but think they're middle class. Um, and But I think it's an important concept for America for a couple of reasons. One, uh, it, it is – 
is a really important way that we measure our national psyche. This idea of, and I, I define middle class by economic security, and this idea that we all either feel economically secure or are aspiring to have that security, I think is a really important part of who we are as a country and an important part of the goals we set for ourselves in our policy. But it's also just a really important concept for the functioning of our economy. We know from a lot of research that a vibrant middle class, people who uh, have the resources to uh, be able to live comfortably, to have food on the table, to have a, a, you know shelter and, and education, um, that is the cradle of entrepreneurship, of innovation, of a, of a whole bunch of really good things that make an economy flourish over time. And so um, for both those reasons, I think it's a really useful concept for us to talk about. I agree with you. What you're saying is it's normative and it's good that it's normative because it makes people demand, wait a minute, I should have, let's just say, affordable college or why am I being denied health care? And that creates pressure on politicians to deliver those blessings of the middle class. Of course, it's not always easy to do so. And as you chronicle in the last couple decades, proving nigh impossible for the uh, vast majority of Americans. Yeah, it's been it's been really tricky. And I think um, part of what's tricky about what's gone on for the middle class in the last several decades is that the, the expectations haven't changed. People grew to expect a certain pathway to the middle class in the, you know, what I call the golden era of the middle class, which was the decades following World War II. But that 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 pathway's broken down. And so I think that the real one of the major, if not the major, political friction in the United States in the last several decades is the breakdown of that pathway and the inability of, of policymakers to help America build a new one. And so we have this, hey, we know how it's supposed to work, but it's not working that way anymore. Why not? Right. And this was something I kept coming back to when reading your book. Did we create we, who, whoever the we is? Did American society bring about the middle class by any design, by any smart decisions, policy decisions? Or was it more, you know, a little bit of being in the right place at the right time? Some lucky consequence of having been the only victor, major victor of a world war where the war wasn't fought on our shores, you know, save Pearl Harbor, having a decent enough education system to take advantage of the opportunities after World War II. So first, let's talk about that. And then I want to talk about the consequence. But do you think we designed the post-World War II economy or more or less lucked into it? Um, I think there was some luck, but there were some really important policy choices that helped build that middle class. And it's, it's you know, some of that is stories you hear and have heard most of your life. Some of it is, is I think, new to a lot of people who, who hear them. I mean, the war itself was a big engine of the middle class. Let's let's start there for a couple of reasons. One, it, it really did crank up the industrial machinery of the United States and in the aftermath of the war, leave us really well uh, positioned to sell a lot of things to the world that we had been producing. But number two, it created this amazing sort of opening for a huge group of Americans who hadn't really been participating in the economy to start doing it. And that, that was women in particular, uh, but also uh, black men. And the war opens that up because a lot of men go off to fight overseas and, and their jobs need to be done at home. And then in the aftermath, even when women leave the workforce for a bit right after the war, they come roaring back in over the next few decades. And uh, and we also you know, have the same f for black men. They are able to to work more and they, they start fighting for access to better and better jobs. And the very short 
encapsulation of what I argue in the book is that those forces really created the conditions that give rise to a middle class, which is we had a really great run of economic growth over several decades with very low unemployment and really high productivity gains from a bunch of workers essentially entering the workforce and finding better and higher things to do with their talents and the the tearing down of the walls that had held women and 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 black men out of the workforce for you know most of american history that came with the war and its aftermath turn out to have been a a really great formula for building a middle class. Exactly. But that's all circumstance, it seems to me. I mean, as much as individual black men wanted to join the workforce, much of the power structure tried to deny that. The same with women in the workforce. I guess there was more universal education in America than there were in European countries comparatively. And maybe you could say something about, I don't even know, nutrition levels. But it does seem to me that... We got pretty lucky, and then we had this hugely rich middle class that actually our policymakers didn't always do the best to foster. And then when things began going bad, we started to, like in the late 70s and 80s, we were in a position where we had gotten essentially fat and happy by luck. And now we were asking ourselves, all right, now let's invent some deliberate strategy to preserve this situation that we didn't even deliberately strategize ourselves into. Yeah, I would, I guess my my one slightly different way of looking at that would be, I think there was an incredibly consequential policy decision that was made in the 60s for the middle class that was not considered such a thing at the time, and that's the Civil Rights Act. Um, I think the Civil Rights Act is this hugely important piece of economic legislation in American history. And part of what happens in the in the late 70s and the early 80s is policymakers actively started rolling it back, parts of it. And, you know, my argument is, is that it was a deliberate choice to open up opportunities for women and, and for non-white men. And when you start rolling back those opportunities in a variety of ways with policy, it doesn't really matter when you're pursuing other policies to try to boost the middle class. You were sort of whether you realized it or not, you were reversing some of the, the big important decisions you had made that had helped big the, build the middle class in the first place. Right, right. We're not disagreeing. And I want to get back to that in a second. But because you just said, so we started rolling back policies. I think a lot of people would say, well, what are you talking about? Once civil rights was gained, you know, it wasn't just easy sailing. But upon that, there were incremental improvements in civil rights or black-white relations. But you chronicle and talk to a lot of experts who say, actually, no, in very real ways, there was backsliding. So I'd just like to give you the opportunity to talk about that for a second. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's there's a few big things. One, the, the war on drugs is a big backsliding in, in civil rights. Um, you know, when, when in, in the 80s, w- with mass incarceration of black Americans, uh, particularly black men, for those drug offenses, that then they were disproportionately targeted. I mean, you just choked off a huge flow of talent and opportunity into the economy, uh, not to mention the, you know, the horrible effects on those particular Americans uh, from those policies. But the second is is that um, affirmative action uh, seems to have been uh, successful uh, in the first d- decade or so after uh, civil rights was passed to actually produce more opportunities for Black Americans, uh, not just to get into jobs, but to to advance and and to get you know promoted into careers that they really had not had any access to before. And um, the Reagan administration started to to challenge it. They challenged it in court. They started rolling back uh, affirmative action, and I think that that um, in retrospect 
retrospect, empirically, was a very bad decision that hurt that flow of talent upward. And, and so those are the two big things I would point to. Um, and then circumstances do change, by the way. Not all of this is d- decisions on, on policy to roll back things that had happened. Part of it is also that over the next several decades, the economy starts to change and policy just doesn't keep up and doesn't support the people that it needs to support. Yeah. So I think there's a reasonable way to look at that. And you could say that the Civil Rights Act was an example of government progress and making a policy change that aided the economy. Yeah, absolutely. But was it some policy that should give us this advantage over other countries and make the American middle class the envy of the world? No other countries, which are more homogeneous to begin with, had to engage in this activity on the scale that we did after World War II to absorb 10 to 15% of their citizens essentially into the mainstream of their country. All we were doing, I think, with the civil rights movement and laws was just making up for some pretty horrific mistakes in the past. And I come back to my thesis, which is essentially that there were a lot of reasons why this great American middle class was created, but most of them weren't because of some designer or some plan. It just happened. And then when things got a lot more difficult, it would be very hard for Americans to sustain the middle class because we never really designed it in the first place. We lucked into it. We weren't that thoughtful about it. We just wanted to keep things going and have that, you know, smart high school kid or not even so smart go to his job in the factory and earn his house just was unsustainable after the 1980s. And it shouldn't be a shock to think that things started breaking apart and then eventually hollowing out. Yeah, I, I guess I don't. I don't disagree with the idea that this was not like an, a, a middle class that was architected. I, I do right. think we um, because I think in China yeah. it is. By the way, there are countries where it has been architected. Sure, and I think that you know, I, but I, I do think that that some of the parts of America that worked to build a middle class were architected. I mean, there 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 are things. There were things like you know America's immigration policies that brought talented you know in particular highly skilled people to the country over, over the course of its history. Um, obviously, at different uh, fits and starts, so to, so to speak, uh, over the first couple hundred years. But but we really were a place that welcomed a lot of uh, people, a brain power that improved the economy. We, we were a place that had sort of certain types of, uh, you know, economic policies and uh, an economic system that I think was conducive to economic growth more than, you know, much of Europe has been historically. But I, I agree with you that it's not like we said, OK, we're going to go build a middle class like the Chinese have with a, with, a, with a big plan and did it. And I think that I absolutely agree that one of the challenges of the last 40 years is politicians started saying, OK, wait, now we need to maybe figure out a way to sustain a middle class. And the, the policies they've reached for for that are in coherent or haphazard or just not up to the challenge, and they have not been able to do it. Right. So if the path to getting back a middle class is to bring back those factory jobs, those kind of manufacturing jobs, from my reading of your book, you would acknowledge we haven't done a great job in terms of keeping them necessarily, and NAFTA has had maybe even, there was a China shock, bigger effects than were predicted, But you do think that the idea of manufacturing jobs as a way to reinvent the middle class is it's past its sell by date? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really important to have manufacturing jobs, and I think that there you could do a lot more to boost manufacturing in the United States. But the idea that you are going to recreate the economy of like 1970 and the the mix of manufacturing in this country, or even of 2000 and the mix of manufacturing, is just. I think sort of empir- empirically really difficult to support, um, in part just because you, you look at how much we produce from factories now and how how fewer jobs it takes to do that. Um, I, I don't think there's any situation where you would think that we could could basically go back to the share of employment that we had 30 years ago, 40 years ago in factories and think that that's realistic. It, it's just not. And that, and, that, and that's part of the problem that we've had over, over the last several decades, particularly in sort of industrial Midwestern states. Politicians have these incentives to chase the jobs of the past, try to just bring back the jobs of the past. President Trump promised to bring back the jobs of the past. He didn't really succeed, I mean, at, at all. He, he had some economic successes for sure, but they were not recreated creating the, the old industrial economy. And I think that, that, that part of the challenge for pro-middle-class policies moving forward is this idea of, okay, we need to embrace um, the conditions that will create the good middle-class jobs of the future. And we leave it there for today with Jim. Tomorrow, we continue the convo talking about some solutions, venture capitalism, and opening that to women and people of color, and how access to education is an insufficient tool for progress. Tune into that or pod in, pod your way in for that discussion on tomorrow's gist. And now the spiel. There's polling out that shows certain groups in America are much less likely to take the coronavirus vaccine than others. New York City firemen, for one, say they won't take it. There's really no good reason for that. But also African-Americans, polls show, are much less likely to take it or say they'll take it, which is a shame because coronavirus has and does hit the African-American community disproportionately hard. Lauren Goff, who's black, was hosting Left, Right, and Center, the public radio program, last weekend. She cited examples like the Tuskegee experiments and the father of gynecology, J. Marion Sims, and his experimentation on black slaves. And she asked this. I'm a black woman, and I get why so many people in our country distrust medical professionals, specifically in my community. Um, and studies continue to show implicit bias, you know, in relationships between white doctors and black patients. And yet black people are dying at extremely high rates of COVID. Christine, how do we get over this trust hurdle? And can we? The Christine mentioned was Christine Emba, who is a writer for The Washington Post. And she said an example set by Presidents Bush, Clinton and Obama might help. But then added. Of course, there's there's mistrust in in the black community. Um, I do think, actually, that, you know, speaking of presidents who set examples that the idea that three presidents, including one black president, would be vaccinated on camera to show that the vaccine is safe, uh, might, you know, go some way towards overcoming that hurdle. Representative Karen Bass was on CNN's State of the Union with Jake Tapper this Sunday. He asked Representative Bass about it. Yes, I think it would be great if he did. And for Defense Secretary, there's two individuals that the Congressional Black Caucus would like to put forward, Lloyd Austin and Jay Johnson. And um, I think that, you know, those two positions and we'll see what happens in other positions as well. A Pew Research poll released this week found that only 42 percent 
of black Americans said that they would definitely or probably get the coronavirus vaccine. I want to ask you, because not only are you an American leader, but you're a former physician's assistant. Right. What is your message to skeptics and what needs to be done specifically to ensure that minority communities that have been hit harder than white communities uh, by this pandemic, what's what needs to be done to make sure they do get vaccinated? Well, first of all, it's it's critical that African-Americans and other communities of color participate in the clinical trials. The other things, and I think that this applies to the country as a whole because of the lack of leadership we have had from day one on the virus, there needs to be a serious public education campaign because the messages from the White House up until this day is diminishing the significance of the virus. She went on to cite the Tuskegee experiment and the more recent allegations about the ICE detention center in Irwin, Georgia. Now, I have two things to say about this conversation. The first is this, that this is a real problem, or let's say a potential problem, because I hope the example of the UK going first erases all Americans' doubts towards the vaccine. Hmm? But if you heard the Congresswoman's answer, it was based on education. You know, it is for lack of knowledge that my people are destroyed or at least unvaccinated. I don't know if that's true. I have an alternative thought that it might not just be knowledge or exposure to the proper studies or arguments. So it might actually have something to do with the overall levels of stress. On this program, we have talked about the concept of weathering, which documents that especially for African-Americans, minorities in America, cortisol levels, stress levels constantly are wearing upon people. And while there hasn't been a definitive double-blind study to confirm the idea of weathering, it is at least a very good metaphor for the fact that when put under a lot of stress and African-Americans, other minorities tend to have more stress in America, you have worse health outcomes. It takes its toll, okay? There are constellations of reasons why African-Americans have poor health outcomes, but this seems to be a good way of thinking about a lot of it. And then you add on to that the idea of bandwidth, how much you can take in and consider and guard against just the stimulus that you are constantly bombarded with in daily life, something like your threat assessment. And when we're asking for a person to individually make a decision to attempt to undo a lifetime of not even learning, but just a combination of received wisdom and conventional wisdom and just, well, that's the way I thought it always was, or the warnings of your elders. It's actually really quite hard. It's onerous. There are defense mechanisms to get through life, to get through the day. And when we see someone like Representative Bass or a very any other very accomplished black person in the media, it might be the case that their education, their knowledge led them to believe in vaccines. Yeah, to some extent it has to be. But it's also the case that their education, their skills, their opportunities, all that, but their education, their smarts, the same kind of smarts that, you know, they might say, oh, I learned about vaccines and therefore I'm not afraid of them. But those kind of smarts also bought them some opportunities. It bought them usually a little bit of wealth a little bit of remove from the experience of many black people who are weathered, who have a slightly different threat assessment, who may not have the bandwidth to stop and think 
about all the implications of a decision before them. I'm also thinking of the New York City back to school statistics. So the New York City school population is 25% black, 15% white, but there are 120,000 more white kids than black kids who have opted to go back to school in person. There are lots of reasons for this, but one is that white New York City might believe that going to school is relatively safe because that comports with their experience and what they're told. But black New York City might believe that to a much lesser degree. It's not strictly speaking true that going back to school is dangerous for kids or black kids, but you can understand why a defensive crouch is something like an adaptive behavior overall. And then you ask people to make individual choices in this area or the related but not the same area of vaccine, and you're asking them to ponder studies with an open mind, to put aside emotion, and it's very hard to do so. There are a lot of threats. There is a lot of weathering. There is a premium on bandwidth, and that all gets in the way of making, you know, what maybe an expert would call the right decision. Okay, now I have another point. I don't know if a psychologist would say that if the goal is to prompt vaccinations, you should always, in the answer, in discussing why any community doesn't want to vaccinate, you should always bring up the bad experiences of that community and the medical community. Now, as a journalist, I think it's more than proper. I think you have to bring it up. But maybe this is an instance where the most effective public health messaging and journalism are at odds. Although, you know, I could be convinced that if you don't acknowledge it, if you just blithely say, oh, yeah, nothing's going to happen. And then everyone in the audience is thinking, oh, yeah, there's a history of not everything happening good for our people. You'll lose out on the potential argument. So, yeah, there's There's certainly a reason to acknowledge the horrors of the past, the Tuskegee experiments with uh, purposefully giving men syphilis. Horrible. But there was also, there are also other examples that are, in fact, the opposite of horrible, that are real examples of the triumphs of medicine, doctors, and the scientific method. The medical community discovered the cause of pellagra and saved hundreds of thousands of lives about a century ago. And most of these lives, or at least a huge disproportionate number of these lives, were poor people and black people in the South and and the Midwest. Pellagra, you might be saying? Yeah. Pellagra was a terrible disease. It still exists in parts of the world. It was a leading cause of death in America in the 19th and early 20th century, and it caused an unreal amount of suffering. Uh, Statistics show that between 1906 and 1940, more than 3 million Americans were affected by pellagra, and there were 100,000 deaths from it. And we don't even know that it existed, and we don't even know how it was cured, which does fit in with my by now annoying refrain that we forget progress really easily in the United States. So they didn't know what caused pellagra back then. They thought it was maybe a germ or believed that it was very racist, just the idea of cleanliness was at play. But then a U.S. Army doctor named Joseph Goldberg found that it was niacin deficiency. Diets with meat, especially among the poor, were of rare diets high in certain kinds of fiber and cornmeal and grits that caused pellagra, a micronutrient deficiency. So you give the people the nutrient of niacin and they don't get pellagra. You save hundreds of thousands of lives. You could even preserve 
niacin in corn. If you just use a different method of corn milling, it turns out Native American cultures knew that and they didn't get pellagra. So here's the reason why this story should be told, should definitely be remembered. You know, Dr. Goldberg did experiment and he experimented on prisoners. Okay, so you say not great, but this is how they did it at the time. And it wasn't a harsh experiment. He chose 11 prisoners. They changed their diets and the worst symptoms were mild. But that showed that his theory was right, that it was based on diet. And by the way, those 11 prisoners were all white prisoners. And this wasn't because of any racial sensitivity. It was just thought that the skin lesions presented easier on lighter skin. But the point is that when there is but one or two examples of experimentation, and those examples are well-known, and those examples are top of mind, but also the most horrible example, a person asked to take a vaccine to always be primed with the reminder of the horror, I would think that wouldn't lead to great vaccine acceptance. But when a story is told of medical progress based on the scientific method that saved hundreds of thousands of lives, I'm saying it should at least not be ignored, it should be mentioned, it should be remembered, I do think there are understandable reasons to be nervous, to feel betrayed, to feel a cultural sense of vulnerability. If you're an African-American in this person, think about the medical system. But I also hope that each step that contradicts those notions is at least noted and absorbed into the full story that they should serve to inform. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Margaret Kelly. She asked that we list the leading causes of death in 1909. Daniel Schrader, gist producer, says, hey, can you do it in reverse order with a top five? And Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast, knows to read it as dramatically as possible. So here goes. Number five, nephritis and Bright's disease. Number four, pneumonia. Number three, diarrheal diseases. Number two, heart diseases. And the number one cause of death in 1909, tuberculosis, a.k.a. consumption. The gist. Just outside the top five, number eight, apoplexy. And number 12, old age, which kind of seems like an acknowledgement. You know, science hasn't really figured everything out yet. It is 1909. Oopru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.